The scripture reading this morning is from the book of Amos, chapter five, chapter five, verse 18, through chapter six, verse 14. Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. Why do you long for the day of the Lord? That day will be darkness, not light. It will be as though a man fled from a lion, only to meet a bear. As though he entered his house and rested his hand on the wall, only to have a snake bite him. Will not the day of the Lord be darkness, not light, pitch dark without a ray of brightness? I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. But let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings 40 years in the wilderness, people of Israel? You have lifted up the shrine of your king, the pedestal of your idols, the star of your God, which you made for yourselves. Therefore, I will send you into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is God Almighty. Woe to you who are complacent in Zion, and to you who feel secure on Mount Samaria, you notable men of the foremost nation, to whom the people of Israel come. Go to Kalnel and look at it, and go from there to Great Hamat, and then go down to Gath in Philistia. Are they better off than your two kingdoms? Is their land larger than yours? You put off the day of disaster and bring near a reign of terror. You lie on beds adorned with ivory and lounge on your couches. You dine on choice lambs and fattened calves. You strum away on your harps like David and improvise on musical instruments. You drink wine by the bowlful and use the finest lotions. But you do not grieve over the ruin of Joseph. Therefore, you will be among the first to go into exile. Your feasting and lounging will end. The Sovereign Lord has sworn by himself. The Lord God Almighty declares. I abhor the pride of Jacob and detest his fortresses. I will deliver up the city and everything in it. If 10 people are left in one house, they too will die. And if the relative who comes to carry the bodies out of the house to burn them asks anyone who might be hiding there, is anyone else with you? And he says, no. Then he will go on to say, hush, we must not mention the name of the Lord. For the Lord has given the command, and he will smash the great house into pieces and the small house into bits. Do horses run on the rocky crags? Does one plow the sea with oxen? But you have turned justice into poison and the fruit of righteousness into bitterness. 
You who rejoice in the conquest of Lodabar and say, did we not take Kernam by our own strength? For the Lord God Almighty declares, I will stir up a nation against you, Israel, that will oppress you all the way from Libo Hamat to the valley of the Arabah. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. God, as we look to Scripture, help us understand, open our eyes and ears and minds and hearts that we can hear from you, uh, all by your Spirit, Lord Jesus, and in your name we pray, amen. Amen. Well, we're in the midst of this uh, Lenten series titled Let Justice Roll Down, and it's a series that's taking us through uh, one of the the smaller books in the Bible, the book of Amos, one of the minor prophets. And um, if you've been tracking with it, you know it's a series about biblical justice because Amos was quite concerned about justice. So in the, in the first week, there was some background about what was going on in Israel at the time. They were in a 40-year bull market, an economic boom, everything from all worldly appearances was going swimmingly well. Uh, Amos a poor shepherd fruit farmer from the south was sent by God to the the Wall Street of the north to declare God's judgment upon the injustice of Israel. Then in week two, we talked about the theological cornerstones of a biblical understanding of justice, the, the primary being that every human being has been created in the image of God and is of infinite value for that reason alone. And in addition to that, God has written on the heart of every human being some sense of right and wrong, some sense of how we ought to treat other human beings. Therefore, every human being everywhere, no matter what faith they claim as their own, stands accountable before God for basic justice toward other human beings. In week three, we we talked about how God is working out his purpose in the world through a redemptive community, God's first call to Abram. Remember, he said that he would make Abram a great nation and he would bless Abram, who would become Abraham, so that he would be a blessing. That mandate has gone down through the ages. Uh, Israel was that redemptive community of old. The church is that redemptive community now. God's working out his purpose through a redemptive community, and that community is to be a community of justice in the world and for the world. Then last week, we saw that the, the first step in doing justice is not social action, but a spiritual turning, seeking the Lord. Amos says, seek the Lord and live. This is the first thing we do as we try to do justice as Christians. And and this week we look at the symptoms of self-centeredness, which really are also the symptoms of injustice. We read a big chunk from Amos today and there's some complicated stuff going on in there. But these three symptoms come right out of that passage. Now, I'll unpack all of that in a moment, but it's all based on this idea from chapter four in Amos, a couple sermons back, that self-centeredness is the beginning of injustice because the root of injustice is placing self above others. You can can see this as we observe situations in the world, certainly as we read Amos, you can see what was happening there. People were valuing themselves and what they could get for themselves more than others. So being self-centered rather than other-centered. And, and ultimately, that's what idolatry is all about. I mean, ultimately, self is at the center 
of all idolatry because idolatry is about a religious transaction. You know, we're in it for what we get out of it. I mean, think of it, right? In ancient times, the fertility gods were making an offering so that we get a good harvest. And you can track that kind of spiritual logic through every form of idolatry, even those to which we're tempted, right? Ultimately, we give our allegiance to something or someone so that we might get something out of it. And this is the exact opposite of the upside-down life to which Jesus invites us, right? He said that in, in the giving away of your life, you'll actually find life. That as you give everything away, you actually receive the fullness of what God wants to give you. Uh, it, it's what makes even this service, what we're doing right now, an incredible act of counterculture, right? Because we come here not to get, but to give, to give to God, right? So what we're looking at today are the symptoms of the problem, not the problem itself. And in this case, the problem is not injustice. The problem is trusting self rather than trusting God. And that inevitably leads to injustice, right? So the three symptoms, symptoms mentioned uh, today are misdirected trust, complacency, and pride. And those flow right out of, of the text. So let's, let's dive into that. Misdirected trust. Israel believed their relationship with God was secure because of their religious activity. This is the last half of chapter five that we read. They were very busy on the church front. Now granted, they were worshiping the wrong small g gods, but they were very busy, very active. You know, they believed that the day of the Lord would mean salvation for them. According to a, a Jewish definition, the day of the Lord is a, a definite though undetermined point of time in the future when God is expected to punish the wicked and justice will triumph. Now, now as Christians, we know that Jesus, this, this is modified a little bit because you know, we've been forgiven of our sin if we're in Christ and have been granted Christ's righteousness. So we can have some kind of assurance that that day when Jesus returns will be good for us, but not, be, not based on what we've done for ourselves, not based on our religious activity, based entirely on what Christ has done for us. Now, Jewish people long ago expected the day of the Lord to be a good day for them because they were often the little guy, the oppressed, and thus the day of the Lord would mean justice for them, finally, after being deprived of it for so long. But as is the case so often in the world, as the power dynamics changed, they did not recalculate the justice equation. As one's societal power increases, one's responsibility to do justice increases accordingly. And they didn't rework the math and found themselves falling into the classic trap of the oppressed becoming the oppressor. See, in Israel, the oppressed had become the powerful but they still thought to themselves that the day of the Lord would be great. But God says, hold on a second. Why do you long for the day of the Lord? That day will be darkness, not light. You know, why did they think the day of the Lord would be good for them? Because they believed their relationship with God was secure because of their religious activity. 
So real quick, if you don't catch anything else in this sermon, catch this. Your relationship with God is not based on your religious activity. If you think that because showing up to church matters in that equation, you're mistaken. The only way your relationship with God is reestablished is through Jesus and what he has done for us and us completely relinquishing ourselves to him in faith. By grace, through faith, we are saved. They weren't saved back then by religious activity. We aren't saved now by religious activity. No one at any time in the history of the world has been ever saved by religious activity. Except someone might argue Jesus himself, right? Because he could. They believed their relationship with God was secure because of their religious activity. They worshiped regularly. They gave sizable offerings. They sang to God, or a God, not our God, in worship. And they trusted in all that. Their faith was in what they were doing for themselves. That's not the gospel of Jesus. I mean, this is a very real spiritual peril in our day. I mean, for my seat, many, many people who call themselves Christians in our country are trusting more in religious activity than in Jesus himself. And that's not to sit in judgment of anyone. I, I, there probably are people who are in every regard real Christians, right? But their, their trust is off. And this is an expression of self-righteousness. It's being self-righteous isn't just being kind of a mean, bad person. It means that you're trusting in what you offer on your own to make yourself right with God and, and with others. That's a works righteousness. That's not the gospel. And it is, in fact, an entirely different religion from Christianity. It's not what Christians believe. See, the belief structure, that belief structure, is diametrically opposed to the claims of Jesus. It puts the God of self on the throne and is therefore idolatry. See, the difference between idolatry and a covenant relationship with God is the difference between self-centeredness and Christ-centeredness. And the Israelites in Amos' day had misplaced their trust from God to self, and spiritual self-reliance is a telltale sign of self-centeredness, which is the beginning of injustice. We'll see that these spiritual issues and social issues always go together. You can't separate them. So next up, complacency, the next symptom of which Amos writes. This is a few verses selected from uh, Amos 6, 1 through 7. Woe to you who are complacent in Zion. You put off the day of disaster. You lie on beds adorned with ivory and lounge on your couches. You dine on choice lambs. You strum away on harps. You drink wine by the bowlful, but you do not grieve over the ruins of Joseph. Life was really good. Their houses were really nice. Their fridges were really well stocked. They had great friends and great parties and, and everything was great. Writes author Ron Rollheiser, we for every kind of reason, good and bad, are distracting ourselves into spiritual oblivion. It's not that we have anything against God, depth, and spirit. We 
we would like these. It's just that we are habitually too preoccupied to have any of these show up on our radar screens. We are more busy than bad, more distracted than non-spiritual, and more interested in the movie theater, the sports stadium, and the shopping mall, and the fantasy life they produce in us than we are in church. Pathological busyness, distraction, and restlessness are major blocks today within our spiritual lives. What a, what a line. We are distracting ourselves into spiritual oblivion. I mean, the, the wealthy Israelites had it all, had life really good, fancy beds, lounging on the couch, great dinners, strumming on harps, wine by the bowlful. Their wealth and the leisure time it created was distracting them into spiritual oblivion. Just like God warned, by the way, in Deuteronomy. Be careful that you don't forget the Lord your God, failing to observe his commands, his laws, and his decrees that I am giving you this day. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, and when your herds and flocks grow large and your silver and gold increase and all you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I mean, this starts to get at the reality that there is a deceitfulness to wealth. I mean, Jesus said it directly. Still others, like seed sown among thorns, hear the word, but the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. There's, there's a lot more to say about that, right? But that's, that's a different message. But, but complacency was the symptom that had set in on Israel, distracting ourselves into spiritual oblivion. And then, for the hat trick, there's pride. The sovereign Lord has sworn by himself, the Lord God Almighty declares, I abhor the pride of Jacob and detest his fortresses. I will deliver up the city and everything in it. You know, God has a lot to say in, in, in the Bible about pride, about thinking too highly of ourselves than we ought. When pride comes, then comes disgrace. Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. So, so three symptoms, misdirected trust, complacency, and pride. Symptoms of self-centeredness, yes, and also symptoms of injustice. And we could, we could stop there and think, man, those Israelites, man, they were messed up. What was up with them? But of course, the point is not them. The point is us. The point is you. And the point is me. And how are we following Jesus? You know, physically, if we develop symptoms of illness, we recognize them as symptoms of illness and do something about it. Go to the doctor or eat some veggies or get some more rest or something. You know, spiritually, if we begin to discern symptoms of illness, like misdirected trust and complacency and pride, we ought to do something about it. 
And maybe even more than that, we, we might consider putting into place some regular practices to maintain our health. You know, just like physical exercise contributes to physical health, there are spiritual exercises that can contribute to spiritual health. The ancient Christian monastics had a name for this. They called it a rule of life. A rule of life is an intentional, conscious plan to keep God at the center of everything we do. Or a set of habits you commit to in order to grow in your love of God and neighbor. Every monastery has a rule of life. There's a very interesting history here. It emerged out of the Desert Fathers way back in the... uh, in the hundreds A.D. after, after Jesus. Every, every monastery has a rule of life that, that the whole community abides by. So it's not just an individual rule of life. It has become a communal rule of life or a common rule. A set of habits engaged by the whole community to confront the spiritual challenges they sense. You know, here at Fifth, we... we don't use this kind of language very often, but we have discerned the value of engaging these kinds of practices. And and a very tangible example of this emerged out of our strategic planning process of about three years ago now called STRATOP. There was a prayer team in that uh, that process, one of five teams that emerged, and that, that prayer team really got to work and wanted to increase the value and practice of prayer because they sensed one of our weaknesses as a community, which is definitely a weakness of mine, I'll be the first to raise my hand on this, is that we can tend to trust too much in our own ability to figure it out. We can tend to trust in our ability to reorganize or or plan it better or or evaluate it afterwards and make it better. We, We just tend to trust ourselves too much. And because we think we can figure it out, we find ourselves behaving functionally like agnostics. Like God's actually there, but we kind of don't expect him to ever show up and actually lead something or actually guide us practically or to tell us something about the way he would like us to go. So we end up making the error that the Old Testament describes as failing to inquire of the Lord. We just go off on our own and get it done. So our prayer team suggested that every team, every group gathering in the church begin their time together by praying. And not just a perfunctory like, thank you God for Jesus, be with us tonight, please, amen. But, But praying, actually seeking the Lord in a way that would be submitting ourselves to God and, and, and redirecting our trust, redirecting our attention to Jesus and all he's done for us. And I, I, had, I had this uh, just this week. That, that, the spirit of that suggestion from our prayer team has stuck with me and I'm trying to practice it because it is a weakness of mine. And I have, a, I have an organizational behavior degree so I like to trust in our ability to organize, Right? And I'm, I'm mentoring some younger RCA pastors in a Zoom, a Zoom huddle, and one of them asked for kind of, of a one-off meeting to talk about some challenges he's facing in his church. And we dove right in, and he said, man, John, I bet you have some ideas. I bet you've encountered this. And I'm thinking, yeah, I've kind of been there. I kind of know what to do. 
And I just had to call time out and say, you know, my, our ideas, and I mean, we, we should do this, but we should inquire of the Lord. We should ask, God, what do you want? Do you want to speak to us? Do you want to lead us? I mean, how, how do you want this to go? And if we're heading down the wrong way, would you just arrest us and redirect us in another way? So just this week, I had to practice vulnerability in that and conf- confess my tendency to get ahead of myself and not ask God. So, so praying together as a group or a team before everything we do is a spiritual habit intended to combat the temptation to trust too much in our own abilities. It's not undermining the fact that God gives people gifts and abilities, right? It's just confronting the temptation to trust too much in those. This is a perfect example of one habit that might comprise a rule of life. Or, or in this case, a common rule by which we're all trying to live. Right? Personally, I would love to see a modern uh, church like ours develop a common rule. How powerful could it be if as a congregation we identified three or four spiritual challenges that seem to be common to most of us and put in place a single spiritual practice, a predictable pattern to go straight at that challenge and meet it head on and intentionally behave in a way 180 degrees opposite of that temptation. That's what this is. Uh, from, from a book that I picked up recently, some examples of this, daily habits, kneeling in prayer at morning, midday, and evening. Taking the posture of submission because we need to do that. One hour per day with your phone off. Ouch. Or how about this one? Every day, scripture before phone. You know, there's, there's all sorts of stuff out there. Now, now, some of you might be thinking, wait a second. I thought this was a series about biblical justice. How did, how did we get all the way around to, to daily spiritual habits? Haven't we drifted from the topic at hand? Haven't we drifted from the issue Amos is addressing with the Israelites? I, I would argue not at all. I mean, one of the very important truths Amos is unpacking for us in his message to the Israelites is that you simply cannot separate spiritual issues from social issues. Right? Jesus didn't. When he was asked to summarize the, the one law of God, he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Seek the Lord. Bless the world. Love God. Love people. These things don't just go hand in hand. They are, they are two sides of the same coin. You can't separate these things. The law of God is spiritual and it is social. If we're not seeking the Lord, we will not do justice as we ought. 
And any attempt to do justice prior to seeking the Lord will either end up in kind of burning out because we're trying to do it in our own strength or we'll make the problem worse because in our brokenness we'll drift towards self-centeredness and we'll end up perpetuating injustice in the name of pursuing justice. And, and in these symptoms of self-centeredness we looked at today, the, the problem of injustice comes right to our front door, right to mine and right to yours. So, this week, I challenge you to identify one spiritual habit you might implement to address an area of spiritual drift in your life. Now, I don't know what the, what the area of drift is in your life, but we talked about, like, my, one of mine is I tend to trust too much in myself. Uh, one of mine is that I need, I need to remind myself of who I am in Christ because I, I can tend to think too much about what I'm not doing or what I've failed to do. Or, you know, I mean, you know you, so you have to identify what the drift is for you. Maybe you're like me, you find yourself trusting too much in your own ability. Well, maybe the kneeling thing, kneeling prayer three times a day, maybe that's for you because, you know, when you kneel down, physically you're saying, I am releasing my trust to another. Maybe you feel complacent in your spiritual life. Maybe that you know, distracting ourselves into spiritual oblivion thing hit home for you as you imagined your, your social media scrolling behavior. Maybe you need that scripture before phone habit. Maybe you need to fast from screen time one day a week or something. You know what? Maybe pride has crept in over time, and, and if the truth be told, as, as difficult as, as it is to get to in this, in this particular temptation, if the truth be told, you find yourself thinking you're above certain tasks because you think those are for lesser people. So maybe the single most profound spiritual habit you could engage would be to call Mel Trotter and ask if you might head down to clean the bathrooms at the shelter. Because you see, the more you think you're above that, the more you need to go and do that. I mean, these, these, these spiritual habits combat the deception we experience in the world and help us seek the Lord more intentionally. And all of that is the first step in doing justice. It's not the second, third, and fourth step of doing justice. It's the first step in doing justice. When we seek the Lord, we grow not only in love for God, but in love for neighbor as well. It's a natural byproduct, two sides of the same coin, right? Seeking the Lord is the first step in doing justice. So if you want to start doing justice, identify and implement one spiritual habit that will help put Jesus at the center of your life. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Pray with me, would you? Lord, thank you for your patience with us. Uh, I know me, and we, we all know ourselves, and we, we know, God, that there's no way we're going to be perfect in this life. But God, at the same time, we want to engage fully. We want to seek you 
We want to pursue you. We want the power and presence of your spirit in our life working through us to advance your purposes in the world. So God, show us. Show us what we can do this week to do that a little better. Not relying on ourselves, but to rely more fully upon you. Thank you, Lord Jesus. We ask this in your name. Amen.